Good morning. My name is Bob. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, today we are finishing our summer series uh, going partway through the book of Exodus. And this is a, a great place for us to stop this year because we are at the end of a major section where God has been calling Israel to be his people and giving them his law. And today in this passage, Israel says yes to God. And then there's a feast. Why? Why does this section end with a very unique party. Let's listen to Exodus 24. A reading from Exodus 24, 1 through 11. Then he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Moses came and told the people, all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel went up. And they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven of, for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Pray with me. God, we're grateful for your word, and we ask that you would accompany uh, it with your spirit, that uh, through my words and our hearing, um, that the truth of the gospel would be applied uh, to our lives in all kinds of ways, ways that we expect and ways that we didn't expect, and that ultimately we would enjoy fellowship with you, fellowship with one another, and that others would be drawn to you through our fellowship. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the best things about being a pastor is getting to do lots of weddings. And uh, you know, you get to be a part of someone's special day, you get a peek into two different families and you get to see a new family beginning. And you get to talk to a lot of people about God's love and design for humanity. And then you get to party. And, and there's a real reason to party, right? To, you get to celebrate this new couple and these two families coming together. And, in the middle of all that, you can actually kind of forget maybe the most important thing, the marriage license. If the couple doesn't sign it, with two witnesses and the officiant signing it, and it doesn't get mailed to the county clerk, there's no official wedding. There's no marriage. Now, I try to pawn that off onto the best man as often as possible, but if there's a problem with the license, it comes back to me, the officiant. And with one of my more recent marriages, there was a problem. Turns out that someone spilled coffee on the license. It was all filled out perfectly, but the county sent it back to me because the license needs to have no smudges or extra markings. So we had to fill it out again, and I sent it back to the county clerk, and as far as I know, 
everything's all right, and this couple is officially married. Now, for us, modern weddings perhaps are the best analogy for what is going on here in this passage. God and Israel are entering into a covenant, a commitment. There are vows, there's an efficient, there's a party. There's even a written license. All the laws are written down, and Israel signs it by having this blood splattered all over them. And that description and account of it is here in the Bible, kind of like a wedding video, for God's people to be reminded of what took place, the promises they made, the gravity and the joy of the occasion, and the ongoing responsibilities they bear. Why go through all this? Why go through something like a marriage covenant ritual and record it? Well, first of all, humans have terrible memories. Anyone who is married will tell you that they forget their wedding vows every day. Second, and maybe because we have terrible memories, we like to simplify and reduce. We want to make things manageable and controllable, including our commitments and relationships. So what ancient Israel did and modern Christians are apt to do is to pick and choose what they like about God and relating to God and forget the rest. Some of us don't like works. Some of us don't like grace. None of us like submission. Lifelong, all-encompassing, covenantal commitment can seem like a real drag. But the whole point is union with God, our eternal fulfillment in Him, and that's what this passage points us to. So we're going to look at two things here, sort of as two stages of this ceremony. The first is that God's people are saved for something, and then God's people are saved for someone. So first... God's people are saved for something. Moses has been up on the mountain receiving from God what is called here the book of the covenant, God's laws and principles for Israel. And uh, it's what we've been talking about these last several weeks. Moses tells them all these things and the people say, we will do it. So Moses prepared a covenant ratification ceremony. Look at verse four. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. Once everything was set up, Moses then begins the ceremony. Verse six, Moses took half of the blood and put it in the basins and half the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. This way, God and Israel are now bound into a covenant. But why this weird thing of throwing blood on the people? What did it mean? Well, first, it's memorable, right? Gathered at the foot of a smoking and flaming mountain in the wilderness with this God speaking to you and then to have this blood thrown on you, that's gonna stick in your memory. But second, including blood was a common way of ratifying a commitment in the ancient Middle East. By including blood, both parties are stating that they would break the covenant upon pain of death. If you don't live up to your end of the bargain of the covenant, you will be hacked to pieces. Right? This, means, this means a serious, full commitment. Third, there were two kinds of sacrifices, fellowship offerings and peace offerings. Now, uh, I'm sorry, burnt, peace offerings and burnt offerings. Now, burnt offerings were usually used to make atonement for sin. 
So in this case, Israel is being splattered with blood of atonement for forgiveness of sin because Israelites are sinners like everyone else. But then this leads to the fourth and most important meaning. The blood splattering consecrates Israel for this new life. They're being set apart, made holy to live out God's laws for the sake of God's mission. We'll see next year how blood sprinkled or smudged on priests and most of the articles of the tabernacle, what that did is it set them apart. It meant that they were now devoted to God's service and they were holy. And this again brings us back to the beginning of our section here in Exodus chapter 19, that Israel's vocation was to be God's holy nation and a kingdom of priests set apart to live in such a way that the surrounding peoples would take note and be drawn to Israel's God, the God of the universe. Stopping here, what we need to recognize is that Israel has been saved for a purpose, saved for something. This ceremony commissions them, sets them apart for this new life and new mission. This is always the case with God's salvation. God saves people and then he gives them something to do, a new way to be. We need to recognize the proper sequence of events though. Israel has already been rescued from slavery in Egypt. They have already been saved and this freedom from slavery is the primary picture of salvation in the whole Bible. Salvation comes before Israel's call and commission to holiness. Israel isn't saying to God, hey, we'll live holy in this way if you'll save us. It's not saying, hey, we'll live this way in order to remain saved. This is simply God saying to Israel, I've saved you, now you must live this way. Israel isn't given a choice. There is no other option. We've highlighted this before and we should highlight it as often as the Bible does. Salvation comes first, as a gift. God acts and rescues miraculously first. Salvation comes before the call to holiness. Salvation does not come in response to holiness. The fundamental ground, the starting point for anyone's relationship with God is God's grace and miraculous salvation, not their performance or record. But salvation always includes a call to holiness. And that's what we need to see here. Israel has been saved to be holy to live differently, devoted to God. Their worship will be different. Their justice system will be different. Their economic system will be different. The way they use their resources will be different. Even the way they gain their territory will be different. If you have been saved, if you know Jesus died for you and you are forgiven in him, then you too are called to holiness. You don't have a choice. You have been saved for something. Now this can be really hard for modern Christians to see and accept, particularly Christians for whom the world is working pretty well right now. Things might be going well for you. There might not be a lot of trauma or drama in your life. You have loved ones, you have a family, you have an education, you have a career. You're pretty safe and comfortable. Jesus and his salvation are really nice add-ons. He provides real psychological and an emotional boost It's great to know he's in your corner, always cheering for you, always loving you, and you'll squeeze him in the small gaps between your career and family and social life and sports and exercise. And when there's no time for him, well, he still loves you anyway. I think that can describe a lot of modern upper middle class Christians. 
But here, and so many other places in Scripture, we are told that if you have been saved, you have been saved into holiness, to live life differently, to intentionally and regularly worship God alone, to speak up for and protect the vulnerable and marginal, to see our bodies, our work, our time, and our wealth as God's, and to use God's stuff to tell God's story. If you have been saved, use what you've been given to tell that story of salvation. Holiness is simply living out the miracle of salvation, applying it to our choices and our daily lives. If your life is pretty indistinguishable from your neighbors, then maybe your salvation isn't all that important to you. If you are a Christian, you are called to live in such a way that you demonstrate that Jesus is dependable, more dependable than money, more dependable than reputation, more dependable than health, more dependable than any other relationship. You are called to live in such a way that says God is worth something. God is worthy of organizing my whole life around. This is what the book of Job is all about. Satan says to God, the only reason Job serves you is because you've given him everything and you protect him. Take it all away and Job will curse you. And that's the question. Is God worthy of our worship and praise even when everything else is stripped from us? Is God worthy of our deepest loyalty no matter our circumstances? Pursuing holiness is putting your time, your reputation, your family, your money where your mouth is. Christians have the same experience as Israel does here. Israel is sprinkled with the blood of the covenant and Christians are sprinkled with the water of baptism, covenantally uniting them with Jesus. If you are a Christian, you have been sprinkled by God. In your baptism, you have been called, you have been cleansed, you have been commissioned for holiness. And like Israel, you are not given a choice in the matter. Holiness is not an option, it is the only way forward. It's possible that some non-Christians understand this better than many Christians do. Salvation means pursuing holiness, and so many aren't that interested in salvation. Holiness looks crummy. It frightens people away from God. But this is a misunderstanding and a misexercise of holiness. Because holiness, consecration, mission, these are not ends in themselves. What we see here is that the end and purpose of all of this is fellowship with God, intimacy with God, union with God. We are saved for something because we are ultimately saved for someone. We are saved for someone. Look at verses nine through 11. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. In ratifying this covenant, there's this bloody ceremony at the foot of Mount Sinai. And then 70 elders of Israel, representing the whole nation, go halfway up the mountain and they have this feast in God's presence, eating the peace offerings. Now, no one at this time would have been asking, why is there a feast? Right? This was normal procedure back then for finalizing a covenant. You have some kind of document, some kind of bloody ceremony, and then you have a feast together to seal it. 
Eating together was considered a very intimate thing. It was a sign of commitment. People might lie to one another, but you wouldn't lie to someone and then eat with them. That just wasn't done. And we still see vestiges of this in our world today. Eating together is still considered an intimate experience. Whether a romantic date or socializing with friends, it usually includes a meal together. And a feast is still a way to seal a commitment. People go out to eat after a business deal is completed. And again, the best analogy we have is a wedding. There's a ceremony where vows are taken, then there's a reception, a party. The point is, 3,000 years ago in the Middle East, no feast, no covenant. And this is, of course, a very unique feast. The elders all beheld God and ate and drank. God was in some way uniquely, specifically present there with them in this meal. This is the height of intimacy. They beheld God. They saw God. And the text will only comment on what the ground looked like underneath God's presence, right? A pavement of sapphire. So it's intimate because on the one hand, God allows himself to be seen. And on the other hand, the elders don't die, right? We've talked before about how normally someone will die if they see God. And this text assumes that we know that, which is why it says God didn't lay a hand on them. They survived. This is incredible vulnerability. God is being seen and these guys are risking their lives, but they're trusting God and taking his invitation. This is such a beautiful scene. They're feasting with God in God's presence. Can you imagine? When I go to Ghirardelli Square up in San Francisco, I love to get a hot fudge sundae. And as I eat, I'm there watching the cocoa being processed, right, and turned into chocolate. And I'm walking around, eating the sundae, looking at the photographs, coming back to the process and seeing this history and seeing the chocolate being made and processed before my eyes. It enables me to taste the hot fudge better, differently. It's the best sundae, partly because of the context and what I'm seeing, what I'm looking at. These guys are here eating and drinking and they're looking at God the source of all beauty and life. Their hearts must have been exploding with joy and contentment. They were slaves, they were servants of Pharaoh, and now they are free and feasting and servants of Yahweh. And God is teaching them his ways and he's giving them a beautiful way to live and bringing them into a beautiful land where he will dwell with them. This is just the beginning of something indescribably beautiful. And it is meant to be the model for how we think of our own relating to God. This is not supposed to be a one-time thing. This is a hint and foretaste of what is coming. When Jesus comes and does ministry, we already saw this earlier in worship, he talks about the coming kingdom of God. And what's gonna happen in that coming kingdom? Well, Jesus usually describes it as a feast, eating and drinking, reclining at table together with him. Sometimes he compares it to a wedding feast. His first miracle was at a wedding feast. And we also saw Revelation ends by talking about heaven as the wedding feast of the Lamb, of Jesus. The picture of heaven for us, given in scripture, is a wedding reception, a grand feast and party. And a wedding reception has a point. It's a time to celebrate and seal a union between husband and wife. And in the wedding feast of the Lamb, the husband is Jesus, And the wife is God's people, the church. This is the whole point. I mean, the whole point of everything. The meaning of life. It's right here. Union with God. That's the point. 
That's what the Bible consistently talks about. That's what Jesus talks about and accomplished. That's how the Bible ends. Our story doesn't end with getting saved. Our story ends with union with God. We are saved for someone. And this isn't some random myth. This is how we're made. It's already scientific consensus. We are made for connection. One author put it like this. We come into the world as newborns looking for someone who is looking for us. Babies aren't consciously doing it. They are programmed to find the person waiting for and looking for them. It's why they can immediately distinguish gender, why they can recognize smiles and voices and smells. We are made for connection. We need it. And we know this to be true because when children are denied it, their development is dramatically hindered. Connection is our design and our purpose. One of mine and Aaron's favorite movies is August Rush. It's, a, it's about a boy, August Rush, who is a, a child a music prodigy. He's also in the foster system. And he has this sense, he just knows that somewhere out there his birth parents are looking for him. And, and all he wants is to be reunited with them. And in the middle of the movie, someone asks him, what do you want most in the whole world? Close your eyes, what do you want most? And he closes his eyes and all he says is, to be found. All he wants is to be found. That's what we all want at the bottom of our hearts. And it's what we're designed for, to be found and brought home to our Father who is looking for us. You might say, well, Bob, I, I get that from friendship or parenthood or romantic love, but those things are crumbs in comparison. They are hints given to us to point us in the right direction. But we are made for something more and better and permanent. We are made for God. You are made for God. We are saved for someone. Now, this is often missing in the way Christians can talk about salvation. They're saved from hell, or they're saved and they're gonna go to heaven, or they're saved from their sins. These are all true, but this is not the whole truth. We are saved ultimately so that we will be united to God forever. Jesus said, I came that you might have life and have it abundantly. And he didn't mean I came to give you better marriages or more self-control or be able to do justice or have healthier bodies. Though having Jesus in your life should lead to these kinds of things. But what he meant was, I came so that you would be united to me like I am united to the Father. I came so that even right now, you can begin heavenly feasting. Your life can be this Exodus 24 scene now, that's abundant life. And because we Christians can miss this, our neighbors don't find Jesus that compelling. Neither heaven nor hell make much sense in our culture, and we can't demonstrate the reality of either. But we, what we can do is demonstrate the reality of union with Christ. And we often aren't demonstrating it. So how? How can we? How, do we? how do we enjoy union with Jesus now and demonstrate it to others? Well, go back to the first point. We are saved for something. Holiness, start there. Start with working to have your time, your money, your affections, your relationships, your intellect, all aligned with God's character and heart, set apart, wholly devoted to him. Not to be saved by him, 
but because he saved you and he's summoned you to this. And as you pursue that and you see how far short you fall on every front, you go back to the foot of Mount Sinai and remember that you've been sprinkled by the blood of the covenant. And that brings you forgiveness and consecration. Jesus died for you and he gave you his holiness. You are covered in him. And so now, washed in him, you can go up the mountain and feast with God. This is why we make much of baptism because that is the physical sign and seal, the reminder, the guarantee that we have been set apart for this, made holy by Jesus, united to him as we look to him in faith. Baptism is the covenant ceremony at the foot of Mount Sinai, it's the burnt offering. Weekly communion is the peace offering, the feast in God's presence, halfway up Mount Sinai. Both sacraments are here in this seminal moment for God's people. You cannot and will not enjoy union with Jesus or fellowship with the Father when you despise holiness. Jesus is your holiness. He is that something and someone you've been saved for. You receive him by faith. You entrust yourself to him. You put no trust in your own efforts. You cannot earn holiness. But you know what? You will likely never find or exercise that faith until or unless you actually try to walk into and step into holiness. When you actually try and you want your life to be set apart for God and you recognize how impossible that is to do it in your own strength, that's where Jesus shows up. And that's about the time when you start to experience God slowly turning the aircraft carrier of your heart back to hit back toward him. Aircraft carriers are hard to turn, take a long time. Hearts are harder. And you know what you want to do when you start experiencing God turning your heart toward him? You want to party. You want to feast and celebrate before God. We experience union with God when we're being comforted by him, taught by him, forgiven by him, changed by him. All of these call for celebrating and feasting. This is why in the Gospels we see Jesus came eating and drinking. He came partying because through him, God was healing and forgiving people. God was changing people. God was bringing people back to his family, right? Bringing back the lost sheep. Of course, Jesus' ministry was a ministry of celebration, And in fact, this is happening in my life as I speak. Starting on my birthday last year, I committed to drinking no alcohol for 12 months. We had just gotten a dog, George. I wasn't sleeping well, I wasn't exercising, I was drinking too much. And so I completely abstained from alcohol for 12 months, period ending on Wednesday. And I did it for the sake of my health, and it went well. There have been some really good health developments for me but something far greater has happened that I didn't set out to accomplish. I found a self-respect and dignity I didn't know I was missing. I found a joy in my family and my home, even gardening I didn't know I could have. My heart is different, it's changed. I love my wife differently, better I would say, you should ask her. If I had to sum up what's different in one word, I'd say, Gratitude. My heart is filled with gratitude for the gifts and the beauty in my life. I didn't set out to get that. I had no control over any of these outcomes. This is simply God's grace and presence in my life. And it's in the midst of the hardest year of ministry of my life. God has shown me unexpected, 
unanticipated, unasked for kindness. I started out simply not wanting to die a premature death, but now I want more holiness and I want more of God. I wanna be with him more often. I wanna celebrate his goodness with him. We should celebrate whenever and wherever we see God working and moving. And God is usually working and moving the most wherever and whenever we are trying to live a fully consecrated and devoted life to him, though ever stumbling and trusting in Jesus. A holy people should be a feasting and celebrating people because they have full access to God through the death and resurrection of his son, Jesus. They are covered in his blood. We see and experience this in our baptism and in the Lord's Supper. Party with a purpose. Party with God's people. And you know, others are attracted to parties. They're attracted to people who are celebrating. Years ago in 1980, my family had just moved to New York on Long Island. And uh, my parents would sometimes throw big parties late at night for my dad's work colleagues. I slept through the parties because I was a little boy. But my older brother would wake up and he'd kind of watch from the top of the stairs. And he said, they were wild. At first party, late at night, our next door neighbor, Eddie, came over. My parents hadn't really met him yet. He was a New York City police officer. It's late at night. My parents are throwing this raging party, and he somehow gets them to come to the front door, and he asks them a simple question. Can I borrow some sugar? He just wanted to be a part of the party. They invite him in, and my dad and him, of course, become lifelong friends. When we party with a purpose, celebrating our union with God, Jesus begins to make more sense and seem more relevant to our neighbors because they're starving for connection. They're starving for meaning and purpose. They're starving for something to really celebrate. We are made to connect with God and we find that connection as we are set apart by the blood of the covenant. We are saved for something because we are saved for someone, God. So let's go and enjoy him forever. Let's pray. God, we're grateful uh, that you have made us with this incredible purpose in mind to be united to us forever. And we ask that you would help us to see this and understand this and imagine this, what this could look like in our lives. Help us to see this in your word. Help us to see how Jesus accomplishes this in the cross and the pouring out of his spirit upon us. We want to know you. We want to know you. We want to rest in you. We want to celebrate in you. And we want others to be attracted to that celebration as well. Help us to step into this holy, consecrated life you have called us to. We are grateful that you promised to go with us. We are grateful that you promised to forgive us as we stumble along the way. Help us to meet you over and over and over again and to celebrate with you and with each other. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.